Welcome to Reading Genesis. My name is Stephen Longclaw. I'm a priest serving in the Anglican Church in North America and also a United States Navy chaplain. Join me as we discover the sacramental and enchanted world of the Bible through Reading Genesis together. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time to come together and study your word. We pray that you would speak to us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in Genesis 37. Genesis 37, and it has been quite a long time since we have met. We are now, we're zooming in now on the character of Joseph. If you remember, we, in chapter 12 of Genesis, we met Abraham. Abraham uh, was called out from Ur of the Chaldeans to a land that God would show him to the promised land. Uh, he and Sarai, uh, eventually, Abram and Sarai eventually have their name changed to Abraham and Sarah. They have the promised child, Isaac. Uh, Isaac we read about Isaac's story. Uh, Isaac has uh, Jacob. We have Jacob and Esau wrestling in the womb of their mother. Uh, Jacob is the heel catcher. Jacob is the one who's kind of crafty. He does all of his fights with his uncle Laban, which we talked about a couple lessons ago. Jacob has 12 sons with four different women, uh, Rachel, Leah, and then Rachel and Leah's um, uh, maidservants. So uh, Bilhah and Zilpah, I think. And, and so, uh, yeah, yeah four, four women, 12 sons, plus a daughter, Dinah, so 13 children altogether. Joseph is one of those sons. We are going to uh, spend the rest of Genesis, Genesis has 50 chapters, and from here on out, we're pretty much exclusively going to be looking at Joseph's story because Joseph closes the book of Genesis. The only exception uh, will be next time we meet, uh, we're going to spend some time with Judah, uh, but then we'll come back and look at Joseph's story. So we're pretty much with Joseph until the end. So let's begin in chapter 37 of Genesis. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock of his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So, Joseph is 17. He's a young guy. And he's in the field with some of his brothers. And he brings a bad report back to his dad. His dad uh, being, of course, Jacob. So... Joseph's brothers are doing inappropriate things. They're doing bad things, evil things. We're not told what they're doing, but they're doing something wrong. Enough for Joseph to report back. Verse 3. Now Israel, that's uh, Jacob. Jacob is Israel. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. And could not speak peacefully to him. So we have a problem. The problem is favoritism. You see, Jacob, Israel, favors Joseph over all of his other sons. And this creates envy in the brothers. Uh, so you know the difference between envy and jealousy is? And envy is where you don't have something and you want that thing. Jealousy is when you do have something and you fear that a third party might take it away from you. So if you're married or whatever, you, you can be jealous of your spouse if 
a much handsomer man comes along and starts flirting with her, you know, at the club or something, you know, you're at, or, or whatever party you're at, right? So, oh, 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 I'm jealous of that guy. He's much more handsomer than I am, and he may take my spouse away. Okay, that's jealousy. Envy, however, is when you don't have something, and you want the thing that you don't have, right? So we see his brothers do not have the love of their father, and they are envious of, of, uh, of Joseph because he does have a special bond, that special love that his father has. The text says Joseph, uh, that Jacob loved Joseph because Joseph was his son given in his old age. Y'all remember whose mother Joseph was? Remember, Jacob had four wives. Rachel and Leah are the two main wives. Rachel was the one that he wanted first, but Laban tricked him and on the wedding night snuck in Leah instead of Rachel. Joseph is Rachel's son. So the son from his loved wife. He had another son by Rachel as well, and that was Benjamin. Benjamin's going to show up in the story a little bit later. Benjamin's the youngest. He's, out, the, out of, baby, yeah. he's the baby. Yeah, he's the youngest. So he's, he's going to show up in the story a little bit later, but he's, uh, we're not told what he's doing right now, but he's, he's around. He's around. So we see that Joseph loved Jacob because he's the son of his old age and... He's the son of Rachel, and Rachel was his preferred wife. So we see what, what fatherly favoritism does. It's created these issues in his own family. We already saw these issues uh, with the women themselves, right? Jacob's wives were bickering amongst each other. Rachel and Leah were fighting with each other about sharing Jacob so they could have children by him, and that caused all kinds of issues, right? So the Bible doesn't teach polygamy, or, or the Bible doesn't teach that polygamy is ever a good thing. The Bible does recognize when people do stuff. It doesn't lie. It, it doesn't, you know, uh, try to change the story or whatever. Like if, like Jacob's being polygamous, that's bad on him, but here's what happens when you're polygamous. <laughs> your, your life doesn't go nearly as well as you had hoped, right? And so uh, we, we see that happening. And that same problem is now being passed on to the children, the children feel that favoritism that Jacob has towards Joseph. And, be and because of that favoritism, they hate Joseph. We see that favoritism expressed in a coat of many colors, or as I saw one time on, on a, uh, uh, the stage play, Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Y'all remember that old, old uh, uh, song? That old, uh, what was that? Play from the 70s or whenever that was? 80s? So that's the same Joseph. Yeah, so his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. They hated him. So this coat was, was an expression of, Joseph's, of Jacob's love for Joseph, right? Joseph gets the many-colored coat. His brothers do not. Very obvious sign of the favoritism that he has. There is also, by the way, just, just so you know, there, there is a textual variant here among some, some texts. Some texts read a coat of many colors. Some texts read a coat of long sleeves. Um, yeah, if, if, so if you ever hear people say Joseph's coat of long sleeves, they're referring to the same thing. It just depends on which text you're reading from. Uh, but the point is, it's still the same. The point is that favoritism is clearly being shown to, uh, to Joseph. Verse 5, Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? 
So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So what's going on? He has a dream. They're gathering uh, sheaves in the field and his brother's sheaves in the dream bow down to Joseph's sheaf. Now notice Joseph doesn't give the interpretation. Joseph doesn't say, therefore, all you guys are one day going to bow down to me and I'm going to be your ruler. His brothers are the ones who give the interpretation and his brothers don't like it, right? So we're not told that Joseph even understands his dream. Joseph is just sharing a dream that he had with his brothers and his brothers rightly interpret the dream saying, oh, what is, are we going to someday bow down to you? And so they hate him even more because of it. Verse nine. Joseph basically says, well, if you don't like that one, I got another one for you. Verse nine, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. All right, so similar to the first dream, where the first dream is sheaves, this one's now stars, 11 stars bowing down to him and the sun and the moon also bowing down to him. The sun, of course, being his father and the moon being his mother. Now, stars is interesting. If you remember all the way back in the first chapter of Genesis, stars represent rulers. Let me read this for us real quick. On the fourth day, God created all the celestial bodies, meaning the stars and the planets and everything. Verse 14 of Genesis 1, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the great light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and to rule over the night. You see that idea of rulership. To rule over the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. God said that it was good. There was evening and there was morning the fourth day. So stars have this, this idea attached to them of being rulers. They rule the night. The great star, the sun, rules the day. The lesser light, the moon, rules the night. That idea of rulership is a theme uh, carried all the way through the Bible, and it's a theme that starts right there in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we know that many flags in the world have different stars or moons or things to represent the rulers of their nations, right? Our own American flag has 50 stars, and 50 stars represent the 50 states of America. Other flags have different kinds of things, moons and, and, and whatnot. So what is happening here is that same concept is being repeated. Right here in Genesis chapter 37, the 11 stars who are Joseph's 11 brothers are bowing down to him. The sun representing his father is bowing down to him and the moon representing his mother is bowing down to him. Now that is interesting. His father gives the right interpretation and his brothers are jealous. His father says... Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves down to the ground? Who's his mother again? Rachel. Rachel. Rachel's died already. So it's interesting that, that Jacob says, well, your, even your mother bowed down to you. Obviously, Rachel 
isn't doing much bowing, being that she's passed away already. So there is a fuller, more pregnant interpretation of this, right? This actually does point further down to uh, further down the timeline to Jesus, who will come, and all eleven stars, being his uh, his twelve apostles minus one, Judas, who killed himself, do bow down to Jesus, and all the earth will eventually bow down to Jesus, as we're promised in uh, in Paul's writings. Every knee on heaven and earth uh, and under the earth uh, will will bow down at the name of Jesus. So it's interesting that his mother is, is mentioned right here in verse 37, that his Rachel is mentioned right here in verse 37, because this does come to pass. This does come to pass in Joseph's time, where his brothers do bow down to him when he's in the land of Egypt. But the fuller interpretation is pointing forward to Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, whom even Rachel herself does bow down to in the resurrection. Verse 12. Now, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near, near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Wow. We're talking about death and murder now. Verse 19. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. And we can hear the sarcasm dripping off their tongue, right? Oh, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him. And throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Let's stop there. Who's Reuben? You remember which, which one Reuben is? He's one of the brothers. Reuben is the First. firstborn. Yes, Tim, he's the firstborn. So he's the son of Leah. He's the firstborn of all, of all the twelve brothers, so he's the oldest. Verse 22, And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore them to his father. So Reuben has an alternate plan. Let, hey guys, let's not kill him. Let's instead throw him into a pit, and we'll teach him a lesson that way. And Reuben's thought is, and when you guys aren't looking, I'm going to go rescue him out of the pit and bring him back to dad. Because goodness, we're trying to kill this guy. I mean, come on. We don't want to kill him. This is our brother. Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. Now that's the multicolored robe, right? That's the special robe that his father gave him, which is the sign of, of dad's favoritism to Joseph. So they, they immediately take that off of him. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him off his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him in the pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. 
and his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. All right, let's pause and think about what we just said. So Reuben wants to save him. They decide to throw him into the, the pit, but then these Ishmaelites come by. And there's, you know, is it Ishmaelites? Is it Midianites? Yes, they're basically, at this point, one and the same people. The Ishmaelites are sons of Abraham by Hagar. Remember the, remember the Hagar incident where Abraham and Sarah concocted a plan that Abraham would have a child by her maidservant Hagar because they weren't having the promised son? That was Ishmael. Then later, Abraham has another child by Keturah after Sarah passes away. He marries again, and Keturah gives birth to Midian. So at this point, though, you know, we're years later after that. These are likely political allies, right? Whether they're actually blood-related Ishmaelites or blood-related Midianites, they've all kind of intermarried by, by now and li living in the same land. So that's why you see either Ishmaelites or Midianites, but don't let that trip you up. So this group comes by, this caravan on their way to Egypt, and they sell Joseph to the group for 20 shekels of silver, it says in my translation. Some other translations may say 20 pieces of gold, but the price doesn't matter. The fact is that they sold him to these Midianites, and now he's going to be carried off to Egypt, never to be seen again. At least they hope never to be seen again. Verse 29, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? So they did this when Reuben wasn't looking. Remember, it was Reuben's plan to throw him into the pit, but then to secretly go back and rescue him from the pit, right? So apparently Reuben went off to go do something, and while he was gone, that's when the Ishmaelites came by and they sold Joseph. So Joseph's now being taken to the land of Egypt, enslaved, mind you. He is now a slave being taken to the land of Egypt. Verse 31, then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So they come back. They have to lie and concoct this plan, right? Because Joseph's now gone. They take the robe, they tear it apart, they dip it in some blood, and they bring it back to their dad and say, is this the robe that you gave our brother? It kind of looks like the robe. Can you identify it? And they say, and Jacob says, yes, that's Joseph's robe. The trick works because Jacob thinks that an animal has devoured Joseph and that the sons came upon the robe and brought it back, right? So we see then Jacob tears his garments. We saw Reuben tearing his garments earlier. That's a sign of mourning, right? You go into mourning, you tear your garments. You may even take off your garments and put on sackcloth, which is a very rough material. Uh, you may put ash on your forehead. That's a sign that you're now in mourning. So that's what, that's what Jacob is doing. He is now mourning for the loss of his son. They rise up to comfort him, but notice what he says. He says the, in um, verse 35, 
I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Now, what is Sheol? Is that, is that what yours has? Grave? Yeah. I will continue mourning until I join my son in the grave. Join my son in the grave. Yeah, Sheol... Uh, think of Hades, right? We have this Greek idea of Hades. It's the place of the dead. In Hebrew, it's called Sheol. That's where you go when you die. Now, don't think the, the Greek philosophical ideas of Hades. Don't read that into the Hebrew idea of Sheol because they are different concepts of the place of the dead. But that's where you go when you die. Your body goes into the ground and your soul goes down to Sheol, the place of the dead. Uh, we learn... And with a, a fuller revelation in the New Testament that Sheol appears to be divided into two places. Uh, this is in a parable that, that Jesus gives where he talks about the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man was, a, was a, a, a faithless man, a man of impiety who did not take care of the poor beggar Lazarus who sat right at his door. And Lazarus was a faithful man, even though he was poor and, and had sores all over him. Anyway, they both die. The rich, impious man goes to um, Sheol, and the Lazarus also goes to Sheol, but he goes to a different place of Sheol called Abraham's bosom, which is kind of the, the, the place of waiting. Uh, but what we're, what we're given there in that picture is that wherever the rich man is is a place of torment, and where Lazarus goes is a place of happiness or a place of goodness, or it's, it's, at least it's not torment. So there's actual actually debate whether that is actually how the Hebrew concept of, of the, the grave or the dead is, is actually laid out. Or whether, like, like if Jesus is actually saying, yes, this is what the dead actually looks like if you were to go down there. This is actually how it is. Or if Jesus is actually just sort of, saying culturally this is what they thought at the time of their culture and jesus is just speaking into that cultural moment um, i tend to think personally that that's actually what it what it was that there was this place of torment then there was this this uh, abraham's bosom didn't they weren't they able to talk or communicate didn't the rich man want just to drop a water on him? that's right drop a water on his tongue and he said no you can't have a drop of water <laughs> And he said, go back and tell my brothers, warn, warn them of the torment that I'm in so that they don't follow me down here. And his answer was, if, uh, if they don't believe in the prophets, they're not going to believe an angel that appears to them. Right? They've made their mind up, right? They, they, they don't want to serve the Lord. You can't change their mind. So that's what Jacob is referring to here. When he says, I'm going down to Sheol, the place of the dead, that's, that's the concept that, that we have. He says, I'm going down to the dead morning. I'm, that's, that's where I'm headed. Now, because we're on the topic and, and because we have some time, <laughs> let's talk about the dead and what happens when Christ goes down into the dead, because we confess this in our creed, uh, particularly in the Apostles' Creed. We say he descended, we des he descended into hell, or sometimes we say he descended to the place of the dead, whereas in the Nicene Creed, uh, we say he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. He was made man, crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. The third day he rose again. So that's all we say. He suffered death and was buried. The Apostles' Creed actually says he descended into hell. Or some translations will say he descended to the dead. 
So hell is kind of an unfortunate translation for the for the Apostles' Creed because when we think of hell today, we think of the place of torment, fire and brimstone and all that, right? We have that kind of medieval idea of hell. When the time the Apostles' Creed was written, the word hell is actually an Anglo-Saxon word, Germanic word, that gets brought in from that language and kind of transposed to fill in that that space of, uh, I think it's inferos in the Latin. But hell is the Anglo-Saxon idea of the dead. It's the place of the dead. So kind of Sheol, Hades, hell are all similar concepts. So the question is, you know, what actually happened when Jesus descended into the place of the dead? Well, there's a lot of different ideas, and I'm not going to go into all the different ideas of what happened. I'll just tell you what I think. The question is, what happened between Good Friday and Easter Sunday? All right? Where is Jesus between Good Friday and Easter Sunday? We know his body goes into the grave, right? His body goes into the tomb. Where does his soul go? As we say in the, in the Apostles' Creed, he descends into hell or he descends into the place of the dead. So what he does is he goes down there and sets the captives free. He goes down there and proclaims his victory over sin, death, and the devil. All of those Old Testament faithful, the folks who were presumably the folks who were in Abraham's bosom, like Lazarus and others from our, from our parable of the rich man and Lazarus, are rescued from Hades. They're rescued from death. They were captives to death, but they are now set free because Christ is defeating death in his resurrection. Uh, this is called the harrowing of hell. He goes down and he declares victory over the dead. The cosmology of the place of the dead has changed since the resurrection. Paul now tells us in the New Testament that Christians, for Christians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we don't, we don't go down into Sheol anymore like you would pre-Christ. Like, like Jacob expects to do in, in our Genesis 37, right? I'm going to go down to Sheol mourning my son. I'm going to go to the place of the dead mourning my son. Now, for Christians, when we die, we immediately go to be with the Lord. Because Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we await the resurrection in the presence of Christ. At the end of time... Christ is going to come back to judge the living and the dead, which again we confess in our Nicene Creed. And our souls will be reunited with our bodies. In Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, it may be 2 Thessalonians. I get the two confused because the themes in there are so similar. Paul actually fills this out a little bit more. That those who are still living on earth at the time when Christ comes back at the end of time will be caught up in heaven in the blink of an eye will be caught up in heaven and they will meet him in the clouds and then they will welcome him back down to earth so this is the concept of in, in the old uh roman times if like the emperor or a city official or some really important guy is coming to your town you send out a welcoming party right you send a whole lot of people to go meet him in the in in in, in the streets and then you have this big party and, and walk back with him into town as he comes back into town and sets up his rule in that town or whatever he's doing in that town. The same, the same idea happens with us in Christ. Those who are alive at the time that Jesus comes back at his second coming will come up to air in the welcoming party. They will meet him in the air. And Jesus is going to come back with 
all the all of the faithful Christians and the Old Testament saints who have died, he's going to come back with all those at once, and then he will, we will welcome him down, and he will establish his rule and reign on earth. And uh, that's when he will be enthroned upon the earth. And that's what we read in Revelation at the very end, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and that is when the resurrection takes place. So the resurrection is when we get our bodies back. Our bodies and our souls are reunited to ourselves. We could even say we get our souls back, depending on, on your perspective. But death is the ripping apart of the body from the soul. So when we die, <laughs> our bodies go six feet into the ground. Our souls go to be with the Lord. In the resurrection, all that is brought back together and improved. I like to think of it as humanity 2.0 right? Jacob has a kind of a similar idea at this point. His body's going to, his soul's going to go down into Sheol because he's a captive to death because Christ hasn't defeated death yet at Jacob's time, right? So he can't go into heaven. There's no, that's, that's not a concept for him. For him, the best he can hope for is to go into Sheol, to go into Abraham's bosom and await and await the defeat of death, which Christ is going to accomplish through his life, death and resurrection. Okay. Any questions on that? Probably a million questions, but <laughs> it's probably some odd concepts that you're not even sure how to how to ask the questions or what questions you should have. So pre pre Christ people went to shale. Yes. But now people don't go to shale anymore. they they just their bodies are just buried in the ground. No, something happens with the soul. Well, they're split apart, right? They're split apart. So the question is, what, what happens with the soul? Okay. So Paul tells us for Christians to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we can assume that what he means by that is that when for Christians, when we die, we immediately go to heaven. Our soul. Our soul goes to heaven. Our bodies go into the ground. And we await for the resurrection. So heaven is not our final place. Heaven's not, not the goal line. The resurrection is the goal line, and the resurrection happens after heaven. Wait, Although we kind of we kind of talk about heaven that way, you know. Heavens, right? right, because there and then at the very end of Revelation, there's the new heavens and the new earth, which is an improved upon heaven. So when we say when we say we go to heaven, what we mean is we go into the heavenly realm where Christ is seated on the throne room in heaven. And of course, as we know, we become little babies with little harps and we float around on, on clouds. That's not true at all. I'm joking, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not what we do in heaven. That's not what we do in heaven at all. We're, we're, we're unsure what we do in heaven. We have a glimpse of it. Our liturgy says that we join our voices with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven every Sunday morning, which would include all those saints who have gone before us in heaven. So they are alive in heaven right now, worshiping the Lord. So the presumption is that's what we do when we die. We, we join that heavenly host and, and, and worship to God, awaiting for the resurrection. So when do we actually get, at what point do we actually get the brand new body? That's the resurrection. <laughs> yeah, the brand new body is the resurrection. And that's spoken of in, in the latter chapters of Revelation. I think it's Revelation 21. Let me just look at it and you can go read this later. So that's not immediate. That's not immediate. Well, so immediate's a hard concept because how does time work in heaven? We, we don't know. There's, there's a lot of 
not speculation isn't the right word because we're actually told in the Bible, I won't say we're told a lot, but we're told enough to kind of fill in some of the gaps. There's still a lot of gaps and we, we can't say for sure. But we're not speculating when we say we go to heaven and then we look forward to the resurrection. But we don't know how time works in the heavenly realms, right? That's outside of time. So how does that even work? I have no idea. So it could feel like a blink of an eye, snap, boom, heaven, boom, resurrection. I have no idea because I don't know how time works. <laughs> and I, I can only think like a human with my human mind, which is made inside of time and bound by space and time. And I can't think outside of that. So yeah, Revelation 21 is the new heavens and the new earth. You can chase that down. So it's, it's a bit harder, though, to speak about what happens to non-Christians when they die, right? Um, do they go down to the place of the dead, kind of a shield-like existence? That's my thought. But again, they await the resurrection. So they, too, will be resurrected. For, for them, death is also the, the tearing apart of the body and the soul. And the resurrection for them is also the union of body and soul once again, but then the question is, well, what happens with once once we once we've all been united, body and soul again in the resurrection? That's when we have the judgment. That's the judgment where, where Christ will, as he says in one of his parables, he'll separate the wheat from the chaff. He'll separate the sheep from the goats. Right. And the sheep, the righteous in Christ are those who will live in the new heavens and the new earth with him. The goats, the unrighteous, the impious are the ones who will be cast away. Just throwing this thought out there. No, um, so you're saying you, that's when you get judgment. So you're judgment. still saying when we be reunited back with our body, you can still get judged bad. So yeah. you're still saying a person that went to heaven, there's a possibility that you could, because you, you haven't gotten judged yet, but you're saying you die, you separate from your body, your, your soul goes to heaven, but you haven't been judged yet. Yes, that's... So you're saying you can still get judged and be judged partially, even though your soul went to heaven for however how long that it was, you can still be judged harshly and not right. be reunited. That's a great question because it almost sounds like there should be two judgments, yeah. but we're not, we're, we don't see two judgments in the Bible. I don't know is the answer. This is, this is how I see it, and I could be wrong. This is one of those places where we're just not exactly told how everything works. Or maybe we are told how everything works and, and I just haven't discovered it yet. <laughs> so I, still, I, I, I still have a lot to learn myself. But it seems to me that the faithful in Christ immediately go to heaven. The unfaithful upon their death go to the dead. Sheol. If you want to call it Sheol. So the Abraham's bosom part of Sheol has been locked up. All of those people have been brought up to heaven. They're no longer there. But the unrighteous, like the rich man from our parable, the rich man in Lazarus, he's still there awaiting the final judgment at the resurrection. Okay? That's how I see it. So there's still a gap. The righteous are in heaven. The unrighteous are in the place of the dead. At the end of time, when the resurrection happens... Everyone, both the righteous and the unrighteous, receive their bodies back because Christ defeated death for everyone. Christ didn't only defeat death for the righteous, 
right? His, his resurrection is powerful enough to defeat death for every single human who has ever lived. And it does defeat death for every single human who has ever lived. So, so death, which is the ripping part of the soul from the body, is conquered, meaning the body and the soul come back together. Death has been defeated. Then the judgment. So the righteous body and soul, reunited, resurrected, are then invited to the new heavens and the new earth to rule and reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. The unrighteous, the way I see it, are then cast away into the fire. Right? Maybe they, I guess it's the easy way out, but maybe they finally die and then they just... Yeah, what the, 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 the second death, as Paul, I think it's Paul who calls it the second death, maybe John in Revelation, but it's the second death for, for the unrighteous. That's what we typically call hell. We typically refer to that as hell. The Bible doesn't actually use in the original languages, it does in English now, but it, in the original language, it doesn't have the concept of hell. It has a concept of some other words. Hell, it kind of gets thrown in and, and, and messes it all up. But yeah, that's, that's, that's what we'll say to that. So technically hell or the place of fire, the lake of fire, which is what's spoken of at the end of Revelation, is, is not for humanity. God didn't create the lake of fire for humanity. The lake of fire was created for Satan and his demons. That's where they're headed. However, because we have followed Satan and his demons in rebellion against God, there will be some who are also lost in the lake of fire. But it is God's will that none should perish, as we are told in other places. All right. So God, God is, doesn't take joy in sending people to hell, but that's their choice because they've chosen to remain in their rebellion against God. Yeah. Okay. The lake of fire then was, it was originally designed for Satan. Well, did Satan get captured? And if he did, then how is he roaming around the world? Satan's, Satan's roaming around the earth right now, seeking whom he may devour with his demons. But he, he rules and he tries to rule as, as best as he can okay. on this earth uh, by, by tripping humanity up. So he never, Christ never captured him to stick him into the lake of fire? Not yet. Okay. Not yet. Satan, it's, it's sometimes spoken of that Satan is the, uh, some traditions will actually talk about Satan being the Lord of the dead, which would be the Lord of Sheol. Okay. But don't take your theology from Farside cartoons, right? <laughs> so, so what we see in Farside cartoons, which are hilarious, I love Farside cartoons, where you see these jokes of like these people going down into hell and there's like Satan walking around with a pitchfork and like they're just like poking people in the butts with their, with their pitchforks or whatever or doing all kinds of silly things in the Farside cartoons. It's, it's always a, you know, a big joke. Yeah, again, lots of gaps when, when we talk about the the cosmology of the afterlife. We do not know everything. What I've presented to you is how I have put it together, but I'll be the first to say I may have put some puzzle pieces in the wrong place because we're just not told exactly this is how it works. But that's how I've put it together. Once you get into this, it prompts a lot of questions, as you could tell, and a lot of speculation, as you can tell. And Speculation, I think, is a good, help, helpful thing, so, so long as our speculation is always bound by Scripture. We're allowed to speculate, but it's important that when we speculate, we say, 
We're speculating now. This is not actually what the Bible 100% tells us, but here's one way that you can put it together based on reading of the text, right? There's some other plausible ways to put it together because, we're again, we're not told 100% how all this works. So we try to be generous in, in, in our interpretations and generous of other people's interpretations. <laughs> so real quick to close, I want to talk about how Joseph and Jesus actually are uh, linked a bit, that, that Joseph is an Old Testament picture of Jesus, uh, just from what we've seen in Genesis chapter 37. We see, first of all, Joseph and Jesus are both sons of Jacob. Uh, Jacob is Joseph's immediate father. And uh, Jacob is Jesus' distant father, right? It's the same Jacob, though, because they come from the same line. Now, Jesus is not descended of Joseph, mind you. Jesus is descended of his brother Judah. He's the line of the tribe of Judah. But they can both trace their genealogy back to Jacob. Uh, we see that the two parents and 11 brothers of Joseph will bow to him. And I already pointed out that that's, it's curious because Rachel... Uh, Joseph's mother has passed away by now. So this must have a Christological interpretation to it, a Jesus interpretation. And so we see Joseph and Mary, Jesus's parents, Joseph and Mary, and his 11 apostles bow down to him. And not just them, but all the peoples of the earth will bow down to Jesus. Every tongue shall confess the name of Jesus Christ. We see that Joseph is sold by his brothers to non-Jews. We see that Christ, Jesus, is sold by his Jewish brothers, not his literal blood brothers, but the Jews of his day, his Jewish brothers, to non-Jews. Who is he sold to? The Romans. Sold to the Romans to be killed on a cross. We see Joseph went first to his brothers, right? When Jacob said, hey, go, go find your brothers in the field and see where they are. And so he goes searching for his brothers, can't find them. He has to go looking for them. Uh, but he is eventually rejected by his brothers. The same thing happens with Jesus. Jesus comes to the Jew first to, to find his, his people, and they reject him. And so he then goes to the Greeks. He goes to the Gentiles. There's lots of comparisons we can make between Joseph and Jesus. And there will be more to make as we continue with the story of Joseph, where we'll see Joseph is going to eventually be set up in Egypt and become the most powerful man in the world with the exception of Pharaoh himself. So God's God has a plan for Joseph. God's hand is on Joseph, even though Joseph cannot see it at this time, right? So where we left Joseph in Genesis 37, he's been betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery. If we were to put a period right there on Joseph's life, that would seem like a pretty bleak existence. But God has a plan for Joseph so much that at the very end of Genesis, I, I think Joseph reflecting back on his life is able to put it together and say to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So God's hand is on Joseph to protect him, to keep him, and God is going to elevate Joseph and put Joseph where God wants him so that Joseph can be the savior. Oh, there's another Jesus connection. Joseph can be the savior for all of his brothers. But we're not there yet. We're only in Genesis 37. That happens a little bit later. So any final questions before we end? Okay, let's pray. 
Lord, thank you for this time again to study your word. We pray that you would be with us as we depart, and we pray that you would strengthen us to love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength this week. Love our neighbors as ourselves. we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining me in Reading Genesis. If you'd like to contact me, I'm available at reading.genesis.podcast at gmail.com. And now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.